0: This episode is brought to you by GoSim. Visit Gosim.com slash best of the left to start saving up to 85% on calls when you travel abroad. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, Bill Moyer's Journal, and the Young Turks.
1: christmas eve vote to pass health care the senate returns to the hill to reconcile their version of the health care bill with the bill previously passed by our house of representatives and you know what that means open government fans (laughs) this is the moment we've been promised when we
2: are negotiating for that plan we are going to have c-span on and you will see who's compromising the American people's interests. This will all be televised on C-SPAN. Broadcasting those negotiations on C-SPAN. I'm going to do it on C-SPAN. On C-SPAN. On
1: C-SPAN. Oh, yeah! <laughs> We're going to do it on mother <laughs> C-SPAN! <laughs> I got my 3D glasses. I got my snacks. By the way, I, uh, I always buy my popcorn at the movie theater and then <laughs> sneak it home because it, <laughs> tastes so much better when it's ridiculously expensive. <laughs> All right, let's uh, turn on the C SPAN and watch some healthcare negotiations. All right, it's not on uh, C SPAN 1 there, or uh, let's try again there. Let's see. Okay, it's not on C SPAN 2. Maybe it's on C SPAN Classic. Let me see if that's. Uh, is it on? You are watching no, it's not the on. The 1938 vote on the Fair
3: Labor hmm. Standards Act.
1: You know what? I have an idea. Uh, let's try C SPAN Español. Let's see if it's on.
3: Bienvenido a Notas de Libro.
1: How about C SPAN English but with a Spanish accent?
4: Welcome to the book notes.
1: Well, I've checked all the C SPANs, even the ones that I made up. Uh, what gives? C-SPAN is not allowed in to these negotiations
0: as they are going on on Capitol Hill between the House and Senate, trying to merge the two health care reform bills. In fact, the C-SPAN founder Brian Lamb is asking the president and party leaders
1: to open up and to uh, make good on the promises you just heard from candidate Obama. Oh shh! <laughs> <laughs> Once again, we scoop the news. Booyah! In your face! Once again, the little show on the Comedy Network got the story first and showed Candidate Obama hypocritically not doing what President Obama is doing. Sad commentary on the state of the MSN. (laughs) The video doesn't lie. President Obama making a promise over and over again.
4: Not once, but at least five times. times—and Feel free to count along with me. During the campaign, though, Candidate Obama...
2: ...will have the negotiations televised on C-SPAN.
4: ...repeatedly promised
1: it's just not as fun this way when you do your job I'll tell you You know who's going to really make a meal out of this Fox and Friends after a couple of years of relentlessly manufacturing Obama scandal from Obama's alleged push to socialist tyranny to what it really means that he got a Portuguese water dog I mean now they got him actually busted on tape
5: Maybe he didn't
1: know that deals are brokered behind closed doors. He's a former U.S. senator. He knows what goes on. And and I'm not saying that's right or wrong either. I'm I'm not saying it's right, but maybe he didn't understand. Is it a commitment? (laughs) That's it. Kind of mild. Reminds me of that time my dog actually caught a squirrel. (laughs) After all those years of trying kind of threw him. After a while, he just let it go. He looked sad, like he'd ruined something for himself.
6: And let me ask you the the, the third idea that you have. Uh, we, we talked about government. You know the, the lie that government is the problem. The lie that health universal health care, is just too costly. Let's right. talk about the third lie. That is that if we allow the free market system to do its thing, everything's going to be okay. That is that's that is the Milton Friedman biggest lie, isn't
7: it? Yeah, well, and that's. I mean, they're all interconnected. I mean, they're all part of the same thing. But the last thing that says that. Here's basically what underlies the lie. It says government cannot be efficient, government cannot be innovative, and it's only the private system that will deliver uh, high-quality medical care at a low cost. And it turns out it's a complete lie. Again, we're back to the other lies to say about the, uh, the private health insurance companies. It just, it just hasn't uh, materialized. Let, let me put it another way let Let me get to those uh, those three assumptions because there's something very uh important that comes in mean, i i'm primary one of the primary things I do is I study crisis management. I study all kinds of crises, and one of the things that happens in every crisis i 've studied is i mean we can take Oklahoma City. let me just do it quickly in Oklahoma City, there were three primary assumptions prior to the crisis that occurred one, terrorism doesn 't happen to heartland America. Uh, Second, an American won't kill other Americans, won't be a terrorist. And third is that innocent men, women, children won't be killed. Well, here's what a crisis does. It doesn't destroy one assumption or one lie, it destroys all of them. And the reason why we have this healthcare crisis, as you think about it, is that every one of these assumptions or every one of these lies that we've talked about have all crashed you know, for some, you know, to a certain extent, for some time, they're all true, or at least you function as though they're true. You have a system constructed around them that maybe functions. See, the point is, the current system, uh, technical system, functions very well. Okay, well let's get back to the let's get but let's money.
6: get let's get back to the point. The point being the lie that deregulation is going to solve it, that, that regulation uh, should not be there, that we should just allow the industry to run in a free market mode, uh, the invisible hand of the market's gonna take care of itself. In in healthcare, nothing is farther from the truth, is it?
7: No, nothing is. I mean that's where those again, those three lies, they, they reinforce one another. They I mean if you had one of them off by itself, and you didn't have the other two, you could probably run the system. It might function. But when you have all three of them together, it's deadly. That's the whole point that we're driving for and also that it's become clear that all three are not only false but they're lies as we've been talking. Well
6: let's use the drug industry for example on this free market. Okay, we try to justify these enormous profits that the industry claims that they have to make because they have to they have to conduct research. Right. If right. you have a new drug, it's very expensive because they have all this innovation, these costs right, right, that they have to spend. Right. That that is the best that's the best example of the lie well, because it's bogus. For, first it's of completely
7: all completely bogus and the reason is, you know, we both. T- Most of the drug innovations are sponsored by NIH, National Institute of Health, and once they and developed by universities, once they show some promise, the private companies step in and buy them at some cheap, you know, lower price or whatever it is. The major cost of the drug companies is in marketing. It's not in R and D. It's in marketing. So again, you know, it it completely blows out of the water that you know the so-called. Uh, free you know private enterprise system is the best system no i 'm not against private enterprise as long as it's done well, not you know with mountains of greed and all the stuff we've seen in the financial crisis, but again, we keep coming back, which I think is the the central point, our central point is you have to expose these assumptions or lies you have to it and you have to keep hitting and hitting and hitting them that they 're lying I mean we can still see it right now in the ongoing debate, you know whether it's uh you have a public option, or what do you allow Medicare to do? It you still see all of these myths? Okay, well, well let,
6: let, let's again, let's not get too far away from what we're talking about. We're talking about the third lie, and that is that deregulation uh, is going to make things better. And, and, and back to the drug issue, the drug industry says, well, you can't regulate our profits because if you do, we can't do R and D. They try to make the argument that, look, we're using all this money to promote our products. Truthfully though, the, it, the, the numbers show that you have people, they're, they're spending $10 billion to sell their products, are $28, $30 billion in 2004 to sell their products. At the same time, they're only spending $30 billion on on and development so that 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 to me is the best example of the lie and in order to get there though uh, I think your book dirty rotten strategies does pick apart all of these lies and I think you have to do that to understand what you're really dealing with unfortunately Congress doesn't get it
8: the internet-
4: Not right here. One year after the great collapse of our financial system, Wall Street is back on top while our politicians dither. As for health care reform, you're about to be forced to buy insurance from companies whose stock is soaring, and that's just dandy with the White House. Truth is, our capital's being looted. Republicans are acting like the town rowdies, the sheriff is firing blanks, and powerful Democrats in Congress are in cahoots with the gang that's pulling the heist. This is not capitalism at work. It's capital, raw money, mounds of it, buying politicians and policy as if they were futures on the hog market. Here to talk about all this are two journalists who don't pull their punches. Robert Cutner is an economist who helped create and now co-edits the progressive magazine, The American Prospect, and the author of the book, Obama's Challenge, among others. Also with me is Matt Taibbi, who covers politics for Rolling Stone Magazine, where he's a contributing editor. He's made a name for himself, writing in a no-holds-barred, often profane, but always informative and stimulating style that gets under the skin of the powerful. His most recent article is Obama's Big Sellout, about the president's team of economic advisors and their Wall Street connections. It's been burning up the blogosphere. Welcome to both of you. Let's start with some news. Some of the big insurance companies, uh, WellPoint, Cigna, United health all surged to a 52-week high in their share prices this week when it was clear there would be no public option in the health care bill going through Congress right now. What does that tell you, Matt?
9: Well I think what most people should take away from this is that the massive subsidies for health insurance companies have been preserved while it's also expanded their customer base uh, because there's an individual mandate in the bill that's going to provide all of these companies with uh, you know 25 or 30 million new people uh, who are going to be paying for health insurance. So it's obviously a huge boon uh, to that industry, and I think Wall Street correctly read
3: uh, what the healthcare effort is all about. Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff, was Bill Clinton's political director and Rahm Emanuel's takeaway from Bill Clinton's failure to get health insurance passed was don't get on the wrong side of the insurance companies so their strategy was cut a deal with the insurance companies, the drug industry going in and the deal was we're not going to attack your customer base, we're going to subsidize a new customer base and that script was pre-cooked so it's not surprising that this is what comes out the other side. So are you saying that this what some
4: call a sweetheart deal between the pharmaceutical industry and the white house done many months ago before this fight really began was because they want to keep the drug company money in the democratic party
3: well it's two things Uh, part of it was we need to do whatever it takes to get a bill never mind whether it's a, a really good bill let's get a bill passed so we can claim that we solved health insurance secondly let's get the drug industry and the insurance industry either supporting us or not actively opposing us so that there was some skirmishing around the details but the deal going in was that the administration, drug companies, insurance companies uh, are on the same team. Now that's one way to get legislation it's not a way to transform the health system. Once the White House made this deal with the insurance companies the public option was never going to be anything more than a fig leaf and over the summer and the fall it got whittled down, whittled down, whittled down to almost nothing, and now it's really nothing.
9: Yeah, and, and
3: this was Howard Dean's
9: point this week, was that uh, this individual mandate that's going to force people to become customers of, of private health insurance companies, the Democrats are going to end up owning that policy, and it's going to be extremely unpopular, and it's going to be theirs for a generation. Uh, it's going to be a, you know an albatross around the neck of this party.
3: Think about it, the difference between social insurance and an individual mandate is this social insurance uh, everybody pays for it through their taxes uh so you don't think of social security as a compulsory individual mandate you think of it as a benefit as a protection that your government provides but an individual mandate is an order to you to go out and buy some product from some private profit-making company that in the case of a lot of moderate income people you can't afford to buy and the shell game here is that the affordable policies are either uh, very high deductibles and co-pays, so you can afford the monthly premiums, but then when you get sick, you have to pay a small fortune out of pocket before the coverage kicks in. Or if the coverage is decent, the premiums are unaffordable. And so here's the government doing the bidding of the private industry, uh, coercing people to buy profit-making products that maybe they can't afford, and they call it health reform. So explain this to the visit from Mars.
4: I mean, just this week, the Washington Post and ABC News had a poll showing that the American public supports the Medicare buy-in uh, that right. by a margin of some 30 points. Right, And yet,
3: it went down like a lead balloon. Look, look there, there are two ways, if you're the President of the United States, sizing up a situation like this, that you can try and create reform. One is to say, well, the interest groups are so powerful that the only thing i can do is i can work with them and move the ball a few yards get some incremental reform hope it turns into something better the other way you can do it is try to rally the people against the special interests and play on the fact that the insurance industry the drug industry are not going to win any popularity contests with the american people and you as the president be the champion of the people against the special interests uh... that's the course that obama chose not to pursue
9: and i think you know uh, a lot of what the democrats are doing they don't make sense if you look at it from an objective point of view but if you look at it as a business strategy if you look at the democratic party as a business and their job is basically to raise campaign funds and to stay in power what they do makes a lot of sense they have a, a consistent strategy which involves uh... negotiating a fine line between sentiment on the left and the interests of the industries that they're out there to protect and they've always kind of taken that fork in the road and gone
4: right down the middle of the line and they're they're doing that
9: with this health care bill
4: and that's it's consistent. If you were a Republican wouldn't you feel right now that it's going your way I mean the Democrats control the White House they control Congress and the only thing they've been able to make happen this year is uh, escalate the war in Afghanistan.
9: The Democrats are in exactly the same position that the Republicans were in once the Iraq war uh, turned bad. All that all the Republicans have to do now is sit back and watch the Democrats make a disaster out of this health care effort and they're going to gain political capital whether they're in the right or not and I think it's it's a very
4: uh, it's a terrible thing for the party. Some of your progressive readers and and, and and colleagues are going to take issue with you, of course, because there are progressive figures like John Podesta of the Center for American Progress, Kevin Drum, uh, and 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 others who say, look, this bill has its real problems. It's it, it's got some some real toxic qualities to it, but it's not as bad as Cutner and Taibbi. I think this is a Senate bill, covers 30 million plus more people, has subsidies for low-income families, spreads the risk, lowers some premium costs, creates some exchanges where people can shop for better coverage and prices. You know, don't
3: be too hard on it. Well, my co-editor, Paul Starr, in, yeah. in the editorial, in the current issue of The Prospect, takes exactly that position, that don't be too hard on Obama. He inherited a really difficult situation and we're making incremental progress if we could have done better we would have paul and i disagree about that i mean i think one of the challenges of a president is to transform the reality rather than just work within its parameters uh, I, I think the other problem frankly is that those of us who consider ourselves progressives invested so much in this remarkable figure barack obama and we read our own hopes into him we saw him as a potentially great president we saw this as a potentially transformative moment i certainly did where he could have chosen to be the kind of president roosevelt was and it turns out that's not who he is characterologically and that's not how he chose to play the moment
8: Can't explain
3: You're probably aware that
0: if you use your cell phone while traveling abroad, you're going to get raked over the coals with roaming charges. Well, I want to give you another option. GoSim is a company that provides international SIM cards you can use in your own phone and load with prepaid minutes that save you about 85% on those international calls. The minutes never expire and can be used in 175 countries. In fact, in 75 countries, including all of Europe, you can receive calls and text messages for absolutely free. I sincerely encourage you to check out the deal at this special URL, gosim.com slash bestoftheleft. Be sure to use this address so they know I sent you. gosim.com slash bestoftheleft. Rush Simbaugh
8: is going to
5: answer a question
10: about uh... what happened to him with his health care scare in hawaii well from a caller, and what he says in response is a little amazing uh... but understand this context rush limbaugh uh, apparently pays out of pocket for any expenses that he has and uh... you know obviously had that scare in hawaii he went to the emergency room he held a press conference afterwards saying about you see this i got the best care in the world here yeah i know rush because you are a multi multi multi-millionaire Yes, if you make $50 million a year, you get excellent care in this country. But he says, "No, no, 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 anybody can get it." Now, listen to his answer and see if this really applies to you. Let's go to clip number 9.
2: Let me let me tackle first in order the things that you've said here. You've said that the treatment I got would bankrupt you and you guessed that the treatment cost $40,000. Right, that's correct. Okay. It did not cost anywhere near $40,000. Okay it cost less not it didn't even cost half what the average suv owned by the average american family is right Jesus. now you say that the average working man couldn't come up with a payment plan couldn't afford this right because of the american lifestyle you gotta have your mortgage you gotta have a car you gotta have this and other. Yeah, yet, and then you and uh, then you say that this is why liberals are for health care, because they're compassionate. What you're saying is you want me and other citizens to pay for your health care that you don't want to have to pay for. Who do you think is going to pay for it if you don't? But, but you're paying for it anyway by the people who are not insured anyway the premiums that you're paying or if you if you have I a, don't a traditional no, 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 no 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 i, I don't you, pay i don't pay premiums i purposely opt out of the health insurance system on because of my own proclivities i just don't want to be involved in a bureaucracy i have i have no sure. desire to have a, a government bureaucrat in the state or uh, an insurance company bureaucrat deciding getting in the way between my and my doctor now, I know I'm very, I'm very lucky in this but it's something yeah. I've worked for yeah but there's only and that we could members. get to the, no. it used to be that way for everybody in this country but friend. The, the system, it the, used to be until liberals got involved in this system, used, when I was a kid right. when I was a kid went to the doctor they sent a bill hospital sent a bill Medicare Medicaid come into play all this uh, the 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 government uh, creating HMOs thank you Ted Kennedy prices start to skyrocket there's no reason this had to happen and there's no reason we can't go back to the way
10: it was oh there were a couple of gems in there it was just a half of the price of an average SUV <laughs> oh that's all i mean what are we talking about average SUV 30,000 40,000 okay what is that half of the price makes it fifty to twenty thousand dollars who has fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to give to a hospital if you felt a little chest pain and you went in but this guy he's living in la la land he has no idea fifteen to twenty thousand dollars who's got that lying around hey sis so you got fifteen to twenty thousand dollars lying around Jr., you got fifteen to twenty thousand dollars lying around I'm not telling you about it uh, okay all right yeah okay 15 to 20. Why? Why? It's just a half, you know, half the price of your average SUV. What's the big deal? Man, you think he's one of you? You think he's for the common guy? He has no idea what the common guy's uh, dealing with. That's why he says half the things he says on his show. He just, if you notice in the second half of that, he was like, Who's going to pay for it? Me? I'm not going to pay for you. I only make $50 million a year. I'm not paying for you. No, Rush, you missed the whole point of insurance. We all pay into a fund. Okay, and if we need it, then we get out of that fund. That's how insurance works. And as the caller pointed out, we're all paying in anyway, and those guys who don't have insurance are getting out the assist, uh, all that money from the emergency room care, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if we all get insurance, that's the mandate. That's the upside of the mandate, right? Then we all pay into it and then take it out when we need it. That's how insurance works. Now, Rush doesn't use insurance. Why? Because of his proclivities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't care, but you don't want the bureaucrats. (laughs) Duke, I see you, man. We all see you. He doesn't want any records of all the crazy stuff he's doing. You think he wants the, you know, the bureaucrats? (laughs) He doesn't want anybody knowing all the pills he's taking. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. Look, put aside speculation about why he got, uh, you know, sick or had a pill panic or whatever it is, right, over in Hawaii, because it wasn't his heart. And they say it's not his heart now, right? But we know in the past he was a drug addict. He says it. He says, yeah, I confess, I took hundreds of pills a day. <laughs> you think he wanted that in his medical records? No, that's why he keeps he pays. And he's, uh, you know, a multimillionaire, so he can do it. So he pays out of his pocket and goes, $15,000, $20,000. Who cares? What difference does it make? And then he's like, I remember the old days when Doc would come in and he'd give us an apple, and I was fine before the Democrats came in. You listen, you moron. Okay, back in the day, people died because we didn't know how to treat cancer. So the doc would come in with an apple and a saw, right? And then, oh, you got a problem with your leg. And they saw it off. Okay, and yeah, you could pay for them because the saw doesn't cost that much, right? Now we do chemotherapy, we do cancer, etc. We don't have 15,0, 150,0, 15,000,150,000 a million and a half lying around to pay for that. okay? Now it's a good thing we save a lot more lives with that treatment. That's why we pay in insurance and then if we need it, we get it out. But Rush doesn't want any part of that because he's got his own money and all he cares about is protecting his own money. You're coming after my money. I don't want to pay for it. And I don't want you knowing what I'm doing. <sighs> Him pretending he's for the common man is the biggest joke there is. And if that didn't show it to you, nothing will. Then you're blinded by it.
4: If you were a Senator, would you vote for this Senate health care bill? No Bob yes, why? you just said it's designed to enhance the fortunes of <laughs> of the
3: industry well um it's so far from what I think is necessary that I don't think it's a it's it's a good bill, but I think if it goes down uh just because of the optics of the situation and the way the republicans have framed this as a make or break moment for president obama it will make it easier for the republicans to take control of congress in 2010 it will make obama even more gun shy about uh, promoting reform it will create even more political paralysis it will embolden the republicans to block what this president is trying to do some of which is good at every turn so i would hold my nose and vote for it
9: my feeling on it is just looking more concretely at the health care problem this is a bill that to me doesn't address the two biggest problems of the health care crisis one is the inefficiency and the bureaucracy and the paperwork, which it doesn't address at all, it doesn't standardize anything. The other is price, which is now falling by the wayside because there's not going to be no public option that's going to drive down prices. So if a health care bill that doesn't address those two problems to me is, and additionally, you know, is a big giveaway to the insurance companies because it provides, um, you know, it creates this new customer base, it's something I, I personally
4: could vote for. Aren't you saying that in order to save the Democratic president and the Democratic Party in 2010 and 2012 you have to have a really rotten health insurance bill?
3: Well when you come down to one pivotal moment where a bill is before Congress and the administration has staked the entire presidency on this bill and you're a progressive Democrat, uh, are you going to vote for it or not? Let me put it this way, if I were literally in the position that Joe Lieberman is in and it was up to me to determine whether this bill live or die I would hold my nose and vote for it even though I have been a fierce critic of the path this administration has taken. But
4: doesn't that further the dysfunction and corruption of the system uh, that you write so often about? I mean you said a few weeks ago that our failed health care system won't get fixed because it exists entirely within the confines of yet another failed system the political entity known as the united states of america you said we have a government that is not equipped to fix actual crisis so if bob votes for a bill that in his heart and in his mind he does not believe really helps the situation isn't he furthering a government that can't solve the actual crisis
9: i think so i i understand his point of view but i my feeling is if you vote for this bill and it passes that's your one shot at fixing a catastrophic and completely, you know, dysfunctional health care system for the next generation, maybe. And I think it's much better for the Democrats to lose on, on this issue and then have to regroup maybe eight years later, six years later, and try again and do a better job the next time well, than to have to, it go through.
3: We're going to have to do that anyway. In other words, these fights never end. We're, we're going to have to go back and, and make a fight another day and hopefully that won't be twenty years from now, hopefully it will be six years from now. I think if this bill goes down, uh, it's going to be even harder to get the kind of legislation we want because uh, the Republicans are really going to be on the march. So uh, the, the Democrats are really between a rock and a hard place here because if it loses, there's one set of ways the republicans gain. If it wins there could be another set of ways the republicans gain and this is all because of the deal that our friend Rahm Emanuel struck back in the spring of passing a bill that's a pro-industry bill that doesn't really get at the structural problems. But but,
9: but that's the whole point. If the Democrats had used as a political strategy, we're just going to do what the vast majority of our constituents want and pass a bill that was real, that had real teeth to it, that provided real benefits and actually fixed the problems, uh, then, you know, the the political benefits that the Republicans could have had after the passage of the bill would have been very limited, it seems to me. They could have only gone that one direction and and criticized that, you know, as a a socialist giveaway. They could have criticized it as an industry giveaway and ineffective
3: look this is not monday morning quarter packing. i mean right. i was i was making the same criticisms that you were at the time but now we're down to a moment of final passage and maybe maybe my views are very ambivalent but i would still vote for it because i think the defeat would be absolutely crushing in terms of the way the press played it in terms of the the way it would uh give uh, encouragement to the far right in this country that we can block this guy if we just fight hard enough if we just demagogue but
9: it. couldn't that defeat turn into that that crushing defeat couldn't that be good for the democrats couldn't it teach him a lesson that you know maybe they have to pursue a different course in the future
4: Well, you're younger than I am. Matt, Senator Russ Feingold of Wisconsin, a very progressive member of Congress who's been at this table, wanted a public option. He says this health care bill appears to be the legislation that the president wanted in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I oh, think that's, that makes that's sense. Right. Yeah.
9: yeah, it's quite obvious that the at the outset of this process, the the White House didn't want, for instance, single payer even on the table. Uh, you know, when Max Baucus mm-hmm. had his initial discussions uh, in committee on this bill, he invited something like forty three people to give their ideas about you know how the bill might uh, look in the future, and he didn't invite a single uh, person from uh... who was an advocate of single-payer health care so that was never on the table and it's quite clear that the public option was looked at more as a political obstacle for the white house as, as opposed to something that they really wanted they kind of, they kind of used it as something to scare the republicans and the moderates with and that's really all it ended up
4: turning out to be. Yeah, if he had wanted a, a, a public option, if he'd wanted a Medicare
3: buy-in, he could have tried to persuade the, the public and the Congress, That's right? what's so calling. yeah. Galling? I mean, if you, if you roll back the tape Uh, he could have played it so differently and he could have gotten a better bill but we are where we are
9: I mean, that's what George Bush did when he wanted to get something unpopular passed or something that was iffy. I mean, he just took, you know, if there are any recalcitrant members, he just took him in the back room and beat him with a rubber hose until they changed their minds. I mean, he could have taken Joe Lieberman back there and said, look, if Connecticut ever wants a dime of highway money again, you're going to have to play ball on this thing. That's what the president does. I mean, the president has an enormous amount of power. Uh, The the, the leaders, the the majority leaders have an enormous amount of power. And if they want to pass something, they can do it. Especially when there's a, a, a tremendous public mandate to get something like this passed, I, I, I just the idea that they couldn't do this was, is, is a, a fallacy.
1: The Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley, also the best-selling author of *Omnivore's Dilemma* and *In Defense of Food*, his new book is called *Food Rules: An Eater's Manual*. Please welcome to the program, Michael Pollan. <laughs>
8: Great to
1: see you. Yeah. Very, very nice to see you. Thanks for coming. Uh, I enjoy any book that is fun-sized. <laughs> <laughs> A snack-sized book. Uh, you can read it in an hour. You can read it in an hour. It is, it is your rules for, for a healthy living. Give, give me what would be your top, if you had to give an overriding, simple rule for people to follow.
11: It's going to sound weird, but eat food. <laughs> you have me. Uh, Continue. And avoid edible food-like substances.
1: Where? But how would you know? For instance, you write in there, don't eat cereal that colors your milk. Yeah, But what if your milk is already pink? I use a strawberry <laughs> milk-like substance. You're
11: going to have a challenge. Unless you get the little blue marshmallows in the uh, Captain Crunch. Or Lucky Charms, it is, I think. Is it, has it been difficult? You know, I, I liken this fight, in some respects,
1: to the uh, fight against smoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're parallels, definitely. And there was a real turning point in that when, when people realized, you know, that the tobacco companies knew that there was addictive uh, substances in there. Is it going to be similar with, with food
11: companies? I don't think so. I mean the parallels break down a little because you need to eat and you don't need to smoke. That's one thing. But you know a lot of the same companies are involved, like Philip Morris owns craft. Philip Morris makes food? Kraft. And is, Philip it, Morris is it smokable food? <laughs> and so if they do let's just say hypothetically they know that they know how to manipulate us and get us to eat more of their chips or their burgers or whatever it is and they've figured out how much high fructose corn syrup and how much fat and how much salt they have shredded those documents a long time ago because the same lawyers are involved do they know how to do that Uh, i don't know i mean food science is very sophisticated and it is designed i mean this sounds conspiratorial they're manipulating you to eat more of it but of course so is your mother when she cooks a, a, a really tasty dinner. So you're saying that my mother <laughs> should I'm be sued by people.
1: I'm <laughs> saying it's a, very, it's a difficult line to draw. But, but isn't there something in, in producing cheap food that will fill bellies of people that don't have a lot of money? Is there some honor
11: in that? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we all love cheap food. Um, and the fact that food has gotten so cheap in our lifetime is a boon to certain people who don't have a lot of money. But I think we need to recognize that cheap food has a very high cost in terms of health, in terms of the environment. And the, uh, that cost is getting paid by other people, um, by you know the public health system. And, and that's part of the problem, the disconnect between what you pay for a cheap fast food meal mm-hmm. and the ultimate price of eating that way. But I think what's about to happen, if we get this health care bill passed and there's some kind of minimal rules, no more pre-existing conditions, they can't throw you off the plan, they have to take you, suddenly the health insurers will have an interest in your health that they don't have now because right now <laughs> that may be the worst sentence i've ever heard said <laughs> suddenly the health insurers
1: will have an interest in your health
11: well, which right now they don't their business plan now is to keep you out of their plan if you're likely to get chronic disease and the western diet creates a lot of chronic disease so if we I mean right now the food industry creates patients for the healthcare industry and they kind of you know have a very sympathetic relationship but that might change and if that changes, I think you will see this very powerful in- industry getting on board this movement, this growing national movement. But to how, reform do the food how do you change it? How do you legislate deliciousness?
1: How do, you, how do you say, does,
11: does the government come out and say, ice
1: cream must now taste like mud? You know, how, how would you in any way? Well,
11: there's a whole lot of things they can do. I mean, one is right now we subsidize the least healthy calories in the supermarket. We subsidize high fructose corn syrup with our, this is with our farm bill. We subsidize hydrogenated soy oil. Um, and, you know, we don't have so to what do would that. We, subsidize? we what could, would we subsidize? We could figure sales. out ways to encourage production of real food, of, of fruits and vegetables. Um, we could discourage the consumption of soda, either through public education campaigns or taxes I mean there's no you know that's the simplest thing you can do I mean the Americans are getting 15 percent 20 percent of their calories from high fructose corn syrup but that Stepping into Americans' kitchens, giving them the choice of what they can and cannot kind of eat, that may be the largest infringement uh, the government would ever attempt. Well, it's very interesting that we resent that so much. Mm-hmm. The government's saying, maybe, you know, don't have 240 pounds of sugar a year, which mm-hmm. is what we're eating. Um, but, we don't resen- <laughs> but we don't resent it when your doctor says you're on Lipitor uh, for the rest of your life or stents now. You know, that seems, oh yeah, sure, we'll do that. We do whatever they tell us to do. It's, it's perhaps can prevent a them making
1: connections uh, yeah. uh, that we have. Yeah. Well, uh, tonight I'm really going to think twice about, I always celebrate every show with uh, uh, a triple, uh, quadruple. pass
8: <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. Food Rules is on Thank the bookshelves you. now. Son, look at all the people in this restaurant, what do you think they weigh? out the window to the parking lot, at their SUVs, taking all of the space. They give no fuck, they talk as loud as they want. They give no fuck, just as long as there's enough for them. Gotta get on the microphone down at once. Talk about some shit that's been on my mind Talk about the state of this great nation of ours People look to your left Yeah, look to your right They give no
1: What's your take now? Are you more optimistic than you were a week ago about health care?
5: Well, we got it done. I mean, it was an extremely close vote. I don't think people understood how close it really was. Um, We had a Republican who waited until the last five minutes of a 15-minute vote and decided that it was better for him to vote with the Democrats than with his colleagues. If not for that, it would have been 219 to 216. Uh, And we had two uh, special elections the week before, In both cases, the Democrat won, and the Democrat was sworn in immediately to take part in that vote. Not for that. It would have been 217 to 216. So it was a really close vote, uh, and I'm I'm glad we've put it behind us because uh, America really needs health care reform. We've got 44,789 people in this country who die every year uh, because they have no health care. That's not my word. That's the word of a Harvard study published in a peer reviewed medical journal. We've got over a million people in this country who go bankrupt every year because they can't pay their health care bills. And we've got well over 40 million people in this country who have no health coverage and simply cannot see a doctor when they need to. And uh, the deaths and the bankruptcies are a direct result of that. And not only that, but we have people who are afraid to lose their jobs and can't change jobs because even if they get a better job, it's a well-paying job, they're not gonna have any health coverage for their pre-existing conditions. And we've got situations where the medical insurance companies can literally pull the plug on you when you're sick because you reach a lifetime cap on your coverage, maybe it's a quarter of a million dollars, maybe it's half a million dollars. But whatever it is, if they pay out that much on you, it's bye-bye for you. Um, And then you're on your own and you have to pay all your own bills and go bankrupt and see your family lose your house and everything like that. We set up a website called namesofthedead.com in which we invited people to come and tell their stories of people who they loved, people who they cherished, who lost their lives because they had no health care coverage, and thousands of people have written into us. And we've posted hundreds of stories at the website explaining exactly that. And these are really touching stories. They're so touching that I took them onto the floor of the house and, and read them, just simply read them, because I felt that they were much more vivid and much more honest and, frankly, much more eloquent than anything I could come up with myself. Uh, these are people who Jesse Jackson used to call the dispossessed, the despised, and the damned. People who were utterly abandoned by us. And in some respects, they died for our sins. The sin of neglect.
8: Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to?
0: I'm more proud of this show and love working on it More than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members only raw feed. This includes audio and video content from the show. And bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot.
1: Chicago Tribune
10: did an excellent story on this. Uh, and let me give you some exact numbers as to two different problems. One is the actual n- amount of money they spent. Over the last two years as we've been debating this, and leading up to the debate of this, um, healthcare care clients spent $635 million lobbying, $635 million. Now, you think somebody spends $635 million and doesn't expect a return on investment? Of course they do, right? And uh give you a small example that the Chicago Tribune talked about. Um, We had uh, medical manufacturers, device manufacturers, who were going to get a a tax on them of $40 billion because all these industries are making way too much. Instead of changing that, what the Democrats are doing is slapping on taxes or regulations, some of which you can argue for, some of which you can say is the wrong way to go about it. Anyway, but in the almost, almost the final version, that tax for uh, the device manufacturers was $40 billion. They sent in their team of lobbyists, almost all former congressional aides and congressmen, and all of a sudden, magically, that got knocked down to $20 billion. Now think about that. They just saved $20 billion for just that small, tiny portion of the healthcare industry. So you think it makes sense for the entire industry to spend $635 million in two years? Of course it does. And they got their money back in spades. And now the second part of that is not just the money they spend, but who they give the money to. It's not just the current politicians for their re-election campaigns. They hire former staff and former congressmen and senators. So uh, the healthcare industry hired 166 former aides to nine congressional leadership offices and five committees involved in healthcare debate, okay, and 13 former lawmakers. So that's 179 overall. But if you take all the companies, whether they're healthcare companies or not, lobbying on the healthcare bill, because there are non-healthcare companies that also lobby about this particular bill, it comes out to 278 former either congressional staff or actual congressmen and senators, 278 of them. Now, why do they do that? And that's really important. Because one, uh, they get, obvious and easy access to the current congressmen and senators. I mean, this guy was his chief of staff. What are you going to do? What do you think? He's not going to take his call? Of course. And is he going to feel bad about saying no to him? Yeah, of course he'll feel bad about it. So they get some sort of institutional advantage there. Number two, a legitimate reason they hire them is because it gives them a lay of the land. How do you fight legislation? How do you fight for legislation, et cetera? But point number three is the one that is really uh, a big problem for the way our system is set up. All the people who work in Congress now know that there's a big payday if they play ball now. The payday comes later when they get hired as lobbyists. So if you've been a good boy and you've given in to those lobbyists over and over again, when you get out, you're going to get paid a hell of a lot more from those same guys. If you didn't play ball and you went against the interests of those lobbies, well, you think they're going to hire you when you come out? no they're not gonna hire you and so that being the case these hiring all these guys to do your bidding for you gives you an enormous advantage we've got to fix that system until we do these lobbyists are going to continue to win not just on health care but
8: every issue sometimes I feel so happy sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad
1: Massachusetts, where tomorrow voters will go to the polls in a special election to fill the Senate seat that Ted Kennedy held for 46 years. A seat that he won in a special election to replace his brother John, who had won it himself in a super-secret special election to replace his brother George Kennedy, who had left to go film the Dirty Dozen. I loves me some Wikipedia. Now, whether or not Ted Kennedy will be replaced by his younger brother, Jamie, is obviously... No? Don't look it up. It's obviously up in the air. But one thing is for sure. Take this to the bank. The Senate seat in Massachusetts will be won by a Democrat. That's how it is. That's how it was. That's how it will always be. Our ancestors fought and died. So that the Massachusetts Senate seat would be a safe one for either a Kennedy or a Democrat. So, <laughs> we'll just move on to our next story, and uh, was, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, you have something to, to run? Is that- We're gonna start this hour with this showdown in Massachusetts that a lot of people didn't expect. The latest polls out today show that Brown, the Republican, has anywhere from a five to 10 point lead. I said, what? <laughs> I, I am, what, uh, what, uh, er, um, what? <laughs> what the 15 months ago barack obama carried massachusetts by 26 points who is this wondrous creature this republican who has so captivated the hearts of this bluest of states my name is scott brown and i'm running for the united states senate this is my truck
7: gone. Scott Brown, as we mentioned, is a state senator here in Massachusetts. Brown's wife, Gail Huff, a veteran Boston TV reporter. He is also a member of the Massachusetts National Guard. One of
6: their daughters did
7: very well on American Idol a couple Something of years ago. Yeah. This
6: 1982 nude photo layout resurfaced. Brown had won a sexiest man contest in
9: Cosmopolitan Magazine. <laughs>
1: So, the Democrats are losing to Captain Freeball. <laughs> the Kennedy legacy goes down to a naked guy who owns a truck. <laughs> Did you hear his bio? For God's sakes, the guy sounds like a fictional character in some racy David E. Kelly show about politics. Tonight, on an all new mass appeal, <laughs> Senator McDangley exercises his pocket veto. <laughs> By the way. I don't know why we had Margaret Cho in a wheelchair in that big (laughs) way. How does the Democratic candidate, A1 Martha Coakley, state attorney general, lose to this cat?
7: Martha Coakley may have made a a big political gaffe here in Boston when she referred to Curt Schilling, the former Boston Red Sox pitcher, as a Yankees fan.
1: All right, that doesn't sound like much, but let's put it in some perspective here for non-sports fans. Uh, that'd be like saying that John Lennon's favorite Beatle was Mickey Dolan's.
2: <laughs> All right.
1: Well, it's not anything a little retail politics can't overcome. This is Massachusetts, baby. Get out there. Shake a few hands. Do some mating and How's that? She said, what now? Ah, apparently when the Boston Globe asked her if she was being too passive in campaigning, she replied, as opposed to standing outside Fenway Park in the cold, shaking hands. Uh, let me see if I can field this one for you. Yes! What are you doing on the campaign trail? Boy, what are you handing me this baby for? A kiss? You're his mom, you kiss him. (laughs) Uh, Maybe Coakley's just playing hard to get. Democratic officials
11: say that she has not turned out to be the best campaigner. The
1: Massachusetts Senate candidate caught on camera
2: not offering a hand to help a guy who was knocked over by a supporter of hers.
3: Coakley insulted Fenway Park. She is not a fan of shaking hands either. The Coakley campaign actually misspelled Massachusetts.
1: (laughs) Coakley was asked her favorite cream pie. She said banana. (laughs) Coakley believes Larry Bird is a Sesame Street character. (laughs) Coakley went into the bar in cheers and didn't know anybody's name. (laughs) Hey, Jerome. No, that's not right. All right, one senator out of 100, special election. Come see, come sob. Better luck next time, Democrats.
9: President Obama made a beeline for Massachusetts this afternoon. He's campaigning for Democrat Martha Coakley in a special election. Mm.
0: What happens in Massachusetts is going to be critically important for this president's
4: agenda. If Democrats lose the seat, it would end their supermajority in the Senate.
7: The Scott Brown victory here would essentially dash the hopes for passage of health care reform.
1: If health care dies, I think that we're going to see uh, a new president
3: in 2012.
1: So Obama must ensure that Coakley wins... If he is to win in 2012, Doc Brown, fire up the DeLorean! We're going to the future. <laughs> Democrats, meet me at camera three. <laughs> Let me see if I have this straight. You need to replace perhaps the most beloved liberal in the history of the Senate with a candidate that believes Kurt Schilling is a Yankee fan Because if this lady loses, the health care reform bill that the beloved late senator considered his legacy will die. (laughs) And the reason it will die, (laughs) let's continue, the reason it will die is because if Coakley loses, Democrats will only then have an 18-vote majority in the Senate which is more than George W. Bush ever had in the Senate when he did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. In fact, the Democrats have a greater majority than Republicans have had since 1923. But for Democrats, apparently a majority of 100 is 60. my inhaler <laughs> and the state that you need to save health care reform is massachusetts <laughs> perhaps the one state whose healthcare system is already more progressive than anything promised in the health reform bill therefore making them perhaps one of the only states that suffers not a whit from the dying of this bill you really <laughs> yourself <laughs> that y'all are in this special election position in the first place is because six years ago, Massachusetts Democrats changed the rule that empty Senate seats would be appointed by governors. Because at that time, they were sure that a senator named John Kerry was about to win the White House. And they didn't want a Mitt Romney appointing a Republican senator to Kerry's position, which would have derailed the Democrats' ability to concede to the Republicans' every whim. (laughs) Strategy. See, it's not that the Democrats are playing checkers and the Republicans are playing chess. It's that the Republicans are playing chess and the Democrats are in the nurse's office because, once again, they glued their balls to their thighs. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought I was in good enough shape to get through a simple explanation of how f***ed the Democrats are, but... <laughs> It's not your fault, Democratic Party leadership. No one should have raised the bar of expectations for you. We should just leave the bar on the ground. Wait for you to trip.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. First of all, in case you've been living under a rock, uh, yes, the Democrats lost the seat in Massachusetts. Uh, Ted Kennedy's old seat now belongs to, uh, as near as I can tell, um, a teabagger. Second of all, a couple of interesting things happened in response to the previous episode, which was a repost from just after the 2008 election. Uh, you know, it was a great inspirational piece at the time of Obama's speeches with music covering, you know, the entire uh, election all the way from 2004, when he first came on the scene, up through the 2008 election and speeches and the reaction to it. And it was, you know, great and inspirational at the time. And of course, now a year later, uh, people's reactions are a little bit different. Uh, the the personal reactions I've been getting have been almost uniformly negative negative and depressing in that, boy, I listened to that and it just made me sick for how things are going now. Or, uh, you know, it made me angry that he was so inspirational then and has not followed through to such an extent now. Anyways, so that was mostly the reaction to it, but I have an interesting story that goes along with it that I'll get to in just a moment. I want to get this out of the way and thank a couple of members first. Uh, Gina L. signed up for a membership on December 1st and went above and beyond the minimum membership donation amount. So thanks very much, uh, Gina, for supporting the show. And Eleanor H. signed up on January 9th and went ahead and signed up for a full year of membership. And Eleanor has been a great you know, listener and longtime supporter of the show. So thanks, Eleanor, for sticking with the show for as long as you have and now sign up for membership to help support it. Okay, so as I said, the reactions were almost entirely negative. There were a couple of people who said, I found it really inspirational, thanks for posting it. But they were definitely in the minority. One fun thing that happened, though, was actually, you know you're you know you're making a, a, an impact when your own material starts getting sent back to you without the people knowing that you are the one who posted it. So what happened was my boss actually, you know, I, it didn't get sent to me, in particular, but my boss actually received an email saying, you know, from like a coalition partner who sent it out to to a big group of people, saying, you know, things are a little tough. The Massachusetts vote didn't go very well. The Supreme Court's uh, just punched us in the gut. Uh, check out this show if you need a little pick me up, and sent a link to my show. And so he called me down the hall and was like, hey, check this out. Look, look at the link they just sent to me, you know, as if he didn't know about it. So that was fun. But the other story that goes along with this is the more interesting one. And it started out with uh, a post that someone wrote on the blog. And they said, I think they should lock Obama and his staff and cabinet in the Oval Office and make them all listen to this particular podcast. They believed in these words at one point in time. If they listen again, maybe there will be hope for all of us, uh, or for for us all yet. Um, So, you know, I like that, the idea of Obama being forced to listen to my podcast seemed like a a good plan (laughs) so i I posted just kind of joking hey does anyone around here have insider access to the white house and you can pass this along so i posted that in the morning and just a few hours later i was at a print shop for for work i was getting a picture printed of a bill signing ceremony with the governor of maryland it was a governor uh, you know maryland law had passed Governor was signing it and you know, every, a bunch of people gather around, you take a picture, Bill signing ceremony. So I was getting this picture printed and, and so the, the photograph is actually sitting on the counter at the print shop and and this couple walks in and so the, the husband, I suppose, uh, comments on the picture and he just kind of asks, you know, what it is and what what's it all about, and so I explain and he says, You wanna see my picture? and he opens an envelope that he has in his hand. And he pulls out a picture of himself with Barack Obama and there's a couple other people in the picture, but you know that's that's the point he's making. And I say thinking back to this comment that's on the blog, I say, "Oh, that that's you." He said, "Yep." And I said, "So you have insider access to the White House a little bit." And he said, "Yep." So I'm so of course I'm thinking alright, he's probably a big donor or something like that to the Obama campaign. He explains that he went to the Christmas party at the White House and that's where that picture was taken. So I say, oh, well that's really interesting and I, I instantly pull out my business card. I actually have some Best of Left podcast business cards that I made a while back. So I hand him a card and I say, you know, actually I'm a producer and this is a show I do and I explain uh, I say, it's, it's, it's interesting that I happen upon you because just a couple of hours ago, I, I read this post, and I explained to him about about the previous episode and how it's a really great and inspirational show, but a year later, my audience is overwhelmingly disappointed in it, and the show is depressing, and so forth. And his, his reaction is, really? As in, you guys, really, you, you, you think that Obama isn't doing that good of a job? He's not being... Progressive enough, really? Huh. I, I just, you know, it, it, like, it was so foreign to him the idea that anyone would think this administration so far wasn't living up to our expectations, and so that kind of that set me back a little bit. I thought, oh well, no, I didn't. You know, it, it's not that so much. You know, because I don't want to be completely off-putting. I'd, I'd like him to at least check out the show, and, and so you know, part of what he said is it sounds really negative It sounds like the show is really negative negative. and I thought about it and in my own head I thought well to some extent yeah it, it is kind of negative because that's what we do as I mentioned in the last show disappointment is an occupational hazard of being a, a liberal or a progressive because we're always disappointed with the way things are going because they could always be better so we're always going to strive to make things better So this show naturally focuses on all the things that are going wrong and how we should change them. And so I kind of thought, well, yeah, it is kind of negative in in that sense. You know, we're not just a cheerleader. And so I try to really delicately tell him about the show without making it sound like it's a, you know, nothing's ever good enough and Obama sucks and uh, sold us out kind of show because I don't really think that that's what this show is. But anyways, that's that's essentially the story. I, I told him about how someone had mentioned, you know, Obama should be forced to listen to this show, and I said, yo, you know, if you want to pass this along to him, that'd be great. Of course, I'm, I'm mostly joking. I'm not really asking you to do that, but, you know, check out the show, see if you like it. So maybe he's listening, and he and his lovely wife who, who I met. If you are listening, welcome. I think uh, in all likelihood, I got off on a little on, on the wrong foot talking about, uh, The the negative things first, you know, to to give a more accurate background, I would say that not only did I support Obama in the primaries and then obviously in the general, but I went out and volunteered at his inauguration and have been, you know, wildly supportive of the ideals set forth and I'm just pushing as hard as I can to have those ideals come true. Believe it or not, I actually have a little bit more to comment on that, but I'm going to save it for the next show because this one's going long already. Um, I just want to say, uh, since that's it for today, as I always say, please consider supporting the show in the easiest way possible and just tell five or 50 friends about it. Word of mouth is uh, making a huge, huge difference in you know just spreading the word and, and getting the show out to as many people as we can. Of course, if you want to do more to support the show, uh, becoming a member is extremely easy and as cheap as uh, a little bit less than $5 a month. And beyond that, There's all sorts of things you can do. Just check out the support the show box on the right-hand side of the website. There are lots of completely free ways to help support the show there. If you're not already subscribed to the show, there's a huge number of ways to do that. I promise there is a method there that fits you, even if it's just getting an email every time a new show is posted. Details on that are in the subscribe box, again, on the right side of the website. You can stay connected to the show between episodes By following us or joining us on Twitter or Facebook. And finally, if you're interested in getting the details on the sources or the music used in this or any episode, links to all of that are always going to be in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks only to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com
8: black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right pitch burning on a shining sheet the only maker that you want to meet a dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor. we will take you out
5: Hi, my name is Mike. Could I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it hey if i can come up with a fiver every month i think most people can and if you can't keep listening do those free things that jay asks you to do and then subscribe when you can thanks